Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can all open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 17 this morning. Back in 1987, there was a band called R.E.M. who did a song called, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And as I've been on social media a little bit in the last few days, I have noticed many who have been kind of name dropping that song as a kind of a theme song for the current circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, many of us might not think that the world is necessarily going to end, but we might think that the world as we know it is coming to an end, at least for um, a short amount of time and maybe even permanently. Now, people are talking about music that might help us kind of work our ways through this situation. And um, in many respects, this is in kind of a lighthearted way to bring some levity to the situation. Uh, but the circumstance in which we find ourselves and even the song title from R.E.M. should remind us of something that is true. And that is that one day the world indeed will end. The world started at a very specific point in time when God created it. And the world will end at a very specific time as God has decided. And the question is... Are you ready for that? Are you ready for the end of the world? Now, those of us who have been to seminary like to use the word eschatology to refer to the end of the world or the end times, the last things. Uh, many of the rest of us might use the word rapture to refer to the end of the world. This is a very commonly used word to describe what will happen at the end when Jesus comes again. And that word is mentioned in our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so we're going to pay some attention uh, to this doctrine and to this text. So we are continuing through our sermon series called Route 66. We are um, <clears throat> looking at each book of the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in the book of Revelation, working our way toward uh, started in the book of Genesis, working our way toward Revelation. And uh, we find ourselves here in the letters of Paul. And um, the book of 1 Thessalonians is believed to be the very first book or letter that Paul wrote, probably around 49 to 51 AD, which means this was written 15, 20 years maybe after the resurrection of Jesus. The events described in Acts chapter 18, we believe, is about the time when Paul wrote this book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, certainly one of the themes in this book, and 2 Thessalonians as well, is the second coming of Christ. Or we might say, the end of the world. 
um, but also weaved or woven through these two letters is this theme of hope as well. And so in the gospel and in the promises of Jesus and in the promises of Scripture, we can all look to the end of the world with hope. And that's what we're going to find in this passage this morning. So a question, just to set up the context here, a question had come to Paul, and the question was, what about the Christians who have passed away before Jesus comes again? What's going to happen to them when Jesus comes again at the end of the world? Are they going to miss out on this glorious second coming? Will they be overlooked? Will they be forgotten? That's the question in people's minds. They submitted this question to Paul, and he answers this in verses 13 to 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. So I'm going to read that passage now. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God in heaven, we do ask that your spirit would work among us wherever we happen to be right now, uh, with your word open before us, that you would give us light and understanding, illumination, instruct our hearts, and give us hope as your word goes forth now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, what is meant by this term rapture? Maybe you've been on the road and you've seen a bumper sticker on a car in front of you that would say something like this. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. The idea is that when the rapture occurs, that Christians are going to be taken off this earth into heaven while others will be left behind. Now this word for rapture appears actually in verse 17 of our text where it says, we will be caught up together. That phrase, caught up together. Uh, the Greek word there that is rendered in Latin gives us this word rapture. And it's a very popular view of the end of the world, of the end times. We find it um, discussed in the Left Behind book series and uh, the Left Behind movie series now. We hear about it in Christian music, on Christian radio, the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, also promotes this view pretty clearly, and it might be the view that you hold. It might be the only view that you are aware of, but I want to bring your attention today to the fact that there are other ways to understand the rapture. There are other ways to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and what will exactly happen when Jesus comes again. So, we're going to think about this in three ways. We'll think about who will be involved in the rapture, when will it occur, and what will actually happen. 
Those are our three points. So first of all, who will be involved? <clears throat> Pretty clear that there are two primary groups in mind here. Verse 13 would be the first group. Paul says we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. So that's just a euphemism that Paul is using for those who have passed away. Those who are already dead, but those who were Christians, they've fallen asleep in the Lord. The other group is mentioned in verse 15. So Paul talks about we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So there Paul is referring to those who will be alive when Jesus comes again. Now he says we who are alive, obviously Paul has passed away. He didn't know exactly when Jesus was coming back but didn't necessarily mean that that would be the case for him. What he's talking about are those who are living on the earth when Jesus comes again. Now at the start of verse 13, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed. So um, again, there was a misunderstanding about what was going to happen. Some had been uninformed or wrongly informed, and they were thinking that for some reason when Jesus comes again, that those who are asleep, those who have already passed away, would be forgotten or overlooked. And so Paul wants to correct that. And he does that in very certain terms. So in verse 14 he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep. So Paul is saying that when Jesus comes again on the clouds in the second coming, with him are going to be every single Christian who have already passed away and who have gone to heaven to be with Jesus. They will be with Jesus when he returns again. And then in verse 15, he elaborates a little further and says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, by this he means this is what Jesus actually said, that we who are alive who are left behind until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So here he's saying that those of us who are on the earth when Jesus comes again don't get any kind of special priority over those who have already fallen asleep or passed away. Quite to the contrary, those who have fallen asleep are not going to be overlooked. Um, they will be caught up just like every believer when Jesus comes again. And so they are not going to be overlooked. And so the application that Paul gives us in verse 13 is very clear. At the end of verse 13 he says that this is all that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. You can just imagine people in Paul's time and people today whose hearts are heavy and were grieving because of people who have passed away, loved ones who have died. And what Paul says is uh, we acknowledge that there is a proper place for grieving and mourning, but as Christians we grieve in a different way. We don't grieve as those who are hopeless in the face of death. We grieve as people who have hope that those who have passed away will not be overlooked, but will be remembered and caught up with the Lord and every other person who has put faith in Jesus Christ. I think of people in this congregation who have passed away in the last few years. Um, Carolyn Ireland's mother, Evelyn, just last week who passed away. Evelyn was not able to be with us on Sunday mornings, but was a member of this church. Uh, Ruan Reed, John Schwartzkopf, Barbara Clark, Ron Greer. Our hearts are heavy 
As we think of these dear saints who have passed on, we miss them. We long to be with them again. And what Paul is saying and what we can believe and hang on to this morning is that one day we will be with them again. There will be a reunion when we will see them again, even though they have already fallen asleep. So, who will be involved in the rapture? Those who have passed away in Christ, but those who will still be on the earth when Jesus comes again. But what about unbelievers? And they're not mentioned here specifically in this text, but we can go to another text to help us understand uh, what the rapture teaches about unbelievers. So, let's go to Matthew 24. If you can turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. 37 to 41. And this is a text <clears throat> that is very commonly used to refer to this popular conception of the rapture uh, that I've been talking about. Matthew 24, 37 to 41. I'm going to read that. This, th- these are the words of Jesus. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So, again, the popular view of the rapture would say that believers are taken off this earth at the second coming of Christ, and that unbelievers are then left behind. And that's where the title for the book series and the movie series comes from. They will be left behind, after which will come a seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus will come again, and some believe a millennium will begin, and then He'll come again even later. Very popular view. Christians taken out of the earth, unbelievers left behind. But let's look at this text and see if that's what this is really teaching. Um, The idea in the books actually, in in the movies, is that it's actually going to be possible during the rapture that cars will be driving down the road and will suddenly crash because the driver was a Christian and he was taken out of the car. Or that airplanes will crash because the pilot was a Christian and she was raptured out of the airplane and the airplane uh, will crash. Or uh, like the band Petra uh, once sang, where are you going to be when the trumpet blows? All that's left of me is going to be my clothes. Very popular idea that all that's going to be left of Christians are their clothes. But is that what's being taught here in First Thessalonians 4 or in Matthew 24? Let's look at Matthew 24 here. There are two groups of people in mind in this passage. There are the prepared and the unprepared. Those who are prepared for the second coming of Christ, for the end of the world, and those who are unprepared. But who are the unprepared ones? Let's look at this. Verse 38. What Jesus is doing is referring to the story of Noah as a way of making his point. And you know in the days of Noah there was a coming flood. And so people were being told, a flood is coming, you better get ready. Verse 38, for as in those days the flood, uh, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So these are the ones 
who were unprepared. They didn't listen to Noah's call and warning about the coming flood. They were the unprepared ones. They were the ones considered to be unbelievers in this case. But notice who is taken away now. And you see this in verse 39. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the unprepared ones, the unbelievers. And then in verse 39, Jesus goes on to say at the end um, of that verse, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what he is saying is that when Jesus comes again, it's going to resemble what happened in the days of Noah. And then he goes on in verses 40 and 41 to say, two men will be in the field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. But if the story of Noah is setting up a pattern for how it's going to happen when Jesus comes again, who is going to be taken and who is going to be left? The unprepared are taken in Noah's day. The unbelievers are taken away in Noah's day. So in verse 40 and 41, it seems what Jesus is saying is that one will be taken and one left. The one taken is the unbeliever, taken to judgment, and the one left is the Christian. Now that completely turns on its head this common rapture idea, which would say that it's the Christian who's taken away. What Jesus seems to be saying is, is no, it's the unprepared one, the unbeliever who will be taken away. I mean, this can be an absolute game changer in the way we consider this doctrine of the rapture. So you might be asking, well, why in the world would Christians be left behind? And hopefully that will become clear as we continue through this message. So, that's who will be involved in the rapture. Let's move on. Secondly, when will this rapture occur? When will it happen? The popular idea in the Left Behind books in this particular common way of looking at the rapture is that the rapture um, will, uh, as I've been saying, occur at a time when Christians are going to be removed from the earth and the idea is that after that, a seven-year tribulation will ensue on the earth. Jesus will come again, and there will be a millennium, and then he'll come again. And so what you have in this idea is Jesus coming divided into two or three stages. Jesus coming is divided into two or three stages. But there's another way to look at this as we consider this text. And the other way to look at this is to consider that there's actually just going to be one stage of Jesus coming. There's going to be one day when Jesus comes. The last day. And that's it. It's not divided into all of these subdivisions and various stages. So let me try to show that to you from the text. Two reasons in particular from this text that I think that it's best to understand Jesus coming on just one last day. The first one is in verse 16. The end of verse 16. Notice that Paul says, The dead in Christ will rise first. So, Jesus clearly here talking about a resurrection during the rapture when Jesus comes again. The dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, will rise up. Their souls will be coming with Jesus, but their bodies in their graves will rise up in the resurrection. Now, when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen 
at a pre-tribulation time that will be followed by subsequent comings of Christ afterward? I think the answer is no, because if you look at John 6, verse 40, it says this, here's Jesus, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up, there's the resurrection, on the last day, on the last day. So, if the resurrection is happening on the last day, and the rapture is going to involve a resurrection, that would suggest that the rapture is happening on the last day, and that we don't have subsequent comings of Christ after that. Another thing to consider on this point is also in verse 16. You notice the mention of a trumpet. The sound of the trumpet of God, it says. This will accompany, this will accompany the rapture, the last day, the end of the world, the sound of the trumpet. Well, again, let's look at some other passages that talk about this trumpet. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So this is clearly talking about the second coming, the end of the world. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. So there's the trumpet. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here we have a picture of the coming of Christ on the very last day, accompanied by the trumpet call. Apparently Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 is referring to the same thing that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. This is the last day. One other passage that would support this, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul says this, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So there even Paul uses the word last. The trumpet imagery is there, but we get the impression that this is the finality of history, the end time. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. So then the trumpet is connected to the resurrection as well. So to kind of put a period on this or to sum this all up, just notice what Paul says in verse 17. And we who are alive to are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It's not the beginning of a seven-year tribulation period. It's not the beginning of a millennial period. It's when this rapture happens and we're caught up to be with the Lord. That's when the eternal state begins. That's when we enter into the age to come. It's the last day after which comes heaven with Jesus on the new earth. So to summarize here, what, what I'm saying is that in 1 Thessalonians 4, we, we do have a rapture described, but it's not a rapture that's the beginning of multiple stages of Jesus' coming. And I think the application point would be simply this, that friends, there are no second chances for people who are left behind. This idea that 
Christians will be taken off the earth and then for seven years people will be left behind suggests that people will then have an opportunity to reconsider what they think about the gospel. That seems like something of a blessing for those during that seven year period. But I think what the scripture teaches is that no, Jesus is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So stay awake. Be ready, Jesus says. Don't count on second chances. Don't count on an extra amount of time after Jesus comes the first time for you to come to Jesus. The day of salvation is today. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't put that off. So when will the rapture occur? On the last day when history is brought to a close. Last thing to consider. What will actually happen during the rapture? What will actually happen? Let's go back to verse 16. Verse 16 gives us these details. We hear, the Lord himself will descend. So this is Jesus who has been resurrected and ascended and at the right hand of the Father. And now he's returning and he is descending. And as he descends, there is some amount of volume that accompanies Jesus' descent. We see that there's a cry of command. We see that there's an angelic voice. And we see also that there is this trumpet of God. Um, trumpets, as you probably know, are very, very loud. If you ever want to wake somebody up, go into their bedroom and play a trumpet. That will certainly wake them up. This is described as an event with loud sounds accompanying it. And the reason why that's important is because part of this popular view of the rapture is that it is a secret rapture. Again, this idea that Christians are going to be raptured out and their clothes left behind or that a car is driving and the Christian is gone, the suggestion or the implication there is that nobody heard anything or knew anything. It's just they turned around and there was a pile of clothes and somehow mysteriously these Christians were lifted out of the world. But that doesn't seem to be consistent, does it, with this passage that says it's going to be very obvious when Jesus comes again. There's going to be these loud noises and it's going to be public before all the world for everybody to see not a secret event but Jesus comes here with a particular purpose he comes as we've already heard with all those who have fallen asleep with all believers whose souls are with Jesus they are with him as he comes. Their bodies are going to be raised up so that their souls and bodies will finally be reunited in the resurrection. And then in verse 17, it tells us that we who are left, we're going to be then caught up together with them in the clouds. And we get this just phenomenal, amazing picture of all of God's people caught up with Jesus in the clouds. Now we should probably not read this too literally. I don't know if Paul means rain clouds in the same way that we understand them um, today. Clouds in the Old Testament in particular are symbolic of God's presence and God's glory. So what we might be seeing here just is that all of God's people are caught up in rapture and joy and bliss with their Savior. But then what happens? 
What happens after this? It doesn't really say in the text, but the popular rapture view would say that when everybody is caught up with Jesus, that Jesus is going to kind of make a U-turn, in a sense, and kind of go back to heaven. And that's what's happening in the rapture. God's people are taken off the earth. But if you look at the text, it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say Jesus is turning around and going back. And in fact, at the start of verse 16, the Lord himself will descend. So Jesus is on the way down. His trajectory is downward when God's people meet him in the clouds. And there's no suggestion necessarily that he's turning around and going back up. I think what we would assume is that he's going to continue to come back down to the earth. And that's how we can understand then that it's the believers left behind and unbelievers taken away to judgment. Believers are left behind because Jesus is coming down to be with us on the new earth for all eternity. It would seem that maybe what Paul has in mind here is something very common in that Roman culture, which is that kings would go out to battle, they would fight, they'd be gone for months and sometimes maybe years, and they'd come back victorious to their city. And when they'd come back, they would pause on the outskirts of the city, and they would wait for people to notice the king is back. And the people in the city would then go out of the city and greet their king. And then trumpets would play as a way of celebrating and acknowledging the return, the homecoming of the conquering victorious king. And then they wouldn't turn around and go away from the city. Instead, together, they would continue with the king coming back to the city where they can celebrate his victory. And it seems like this is what Paul has in mind. When Jesus comes again, he is our king. He has waged war. He has waged the battle against death and sin. He has laid down his life. He has been resurrected from the dead. He is victorious and he's coming back. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, his people go to greet him in the clouds. And then we return to the earth to worship him and live in a new earth that is purified and glorified forever and ever. And if we look at Revelation 21, we'll see that this is absolutely confirmed. Revelation 21, verses 2 to 5. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The new Jerusalem and God coming down out of heaven to earth. And then it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this is the rapture. This is how the world is going to end. Jesus is going to come one day, and we're going to greet him. But we're going to come back to this earth, and we're going to live with him forever. And all of our hopes and longings are finally going to be fulfilled living on an earth without the fear of pain and sickness and coronavirus and disease and death that will all be eliminated. 
We won't have to worry about those things anymore. Which is why Paul ends this entire passage in verse 18 with this simple application. Encourage one another with these words. And that is what we all as brothers and sisters at New Life and as members of the Christian church are going to need to do in the coming weeks and months and for however long this thing lasts. Let's encourage one another. And we can do it while maintaining our social distancing. We can do it through text. We can do it by sending cards. We can do it by email. We can do it through phone calls. We can think about those in particular who uh, maybe haven't been out for a long time. Those who might be particularly lonely. We think of the elderly. We think of the sick who might feel forgotten. Let's make sure they know that they're not forgotten. And let's make sure that they know the promises and the joy and the hope that are for us here in the gospel. That goodness will transcend evil. That light will overcome darkness. That dancing will outlast mourning. And that life is victorious over death in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, we might disagree on all of the details of how the second coming works out, and that's okay. One thing we all agree on as Christians is this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And one day he's coming back for us. Let's pray. Our Father, Thank you for your word. We acknowledge, O oh God, that sometimes your word is hard to understand. But we thank you that your spirit comes to illumine our minds. And I pray that you would bring us as your people to understand what you're saying. But most of all, Father, through your word, give us hope. Help us to be a people of hope. Help us to radiate hope to all those around us, our brothers and sisters here in the church and also to our community, to our nation, and to our world. And we thank you, Jesus. We know you're coming again to make all things new, and we ask you, Jesus, to come quickly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.